This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihew from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. What's up, everybody out there in listening land? This is episode four zero. We made it, Steve-O. Episode 40 already. It seems crazy that we're already here, but we are. And we're back for another episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. It's a big one. We've got a great guest today, but welcome to the big four zero, Steve. Not for you, maybe age-wise. Well, maybe. Are you 40? <laughs> How old are you? I'm closer to that than you would think. I'm within shouting distance. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm within a couple shouts of it. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's exciting, Tucker, and we've got a great guest. It's actually a guest I've been wanting to get on the show for a while. It's just such a great topic, and it's a unique person that has such a great vantage point from a couple different sides of things. So I'm excited to get into our interview. Maybe before we dive into our interview and chat with our guests, what's going on with you this week, both on the agent and brokerage side of the business? Yeah, so let me start on the broker side of things. I'll be honest, it's been a really slow week. I think that's because school's out and school's ending or it's about to end. I think there's a lot of graduation stuff going on there. I don't think that's a surprise. I think our industry really feels it when school starts and when it ends. I think it's just such a big event in many families' lives that they really focus on both sides of things. So I will say the the number of leads coming in has been lower than usual. And we have a lot in escrow, make no mistake, and that hasn't changed. But the new stuff coming in, has we felt it. And I, I would be surprised if a lot of our listeners haven't as well. And I've heard it from other agents as well. I've heard the same thing, actually, from other agents that actually work for your company. And otherwise, they just, it felt like maybe the market kind of seesawed back just a touch. I think it'll move forward again, but we're in kind of one of those little lull weeks or two. I think you're right about graduation and whatnot. Yeah, I think somewhere probably around Father's Day or right after that is when we'll really start to feel things go back into full force. So towards the end of this month. Beyond that, you know, we just had a couple rough experiences. Not everything's always puppies and rainbows on this side of the business. <laughs> I know, you know, we get out here and we, we sometimes maybe are guilty of talking about the good stuff. But man, I had three sale fails in the last week um, for varying reasons. One had a family issue come up. This one was really brutal because they were in contract to buy an $800,000 house and we were listing their $900,000 house. Ouch. They were making a fairly lateral move. All of a sudden, they had some family issues come up. You know, they were so very nice about it. And, you know, what do you do? They said, we, we want to terminate and we also want to take our house off the market. So that was a rough one. This one's almost equally rough in a different way. It was a short sale that was a sale fail. And that's really tough because here you are, we were at bank approval. And as you know, on short sales, as we always say, there's nothing short about a short sale. We've been working on three months to get that bank approval. And lo and behold, we get it. Buyer does inspections and just didn't like the condition of the property and terminated. And so we're back on the market I think we're going to get some offers again fairly soon, but we got to go back through that bank approval process. So that one was rough as well. And then we just had another more standard sale fail due to repair issues on the house. That one was interesting because my seller was in contract to buy. This is a success story. We're able to massage things so that we went back on the market, kept his purchase together, and then got a quick offer and all is good again. So that one was hopefully has a happy ending 
Sounds like time. you were uh, riding the real estate roller coaster this past. Oh. Oh, it's brutal. It's brutal. So that's been my week on the broker side of things. On the brokerage side, I'm excited. We've got a pretty cool event this week. The Portland Business Journal, 100 Fastest Growing Companies. They have a little party, if you will, kind of like a release party where they announce who's rated at what numbers. Last year, Premier Property Group was number eight of the 100 fastest growing companies in Portland. So we're hoping to be high up on that list again. So the executives and owners of our company are going to go to that this week. We were also spotlighted in October in the Portland Business Journal under a different story. So we've got a great working relationship with those guys over there. How about you, Tucker? What's your week been like? You know, it's I've heard it slowed a little bit, but you know, we haven't really felt that. We actually just went pending today. We had to officially market pending the day that we're recording this on uh our other, uh, you know, million dollar plus spec home uh, in Lake Oswego. So we're officially everything that we have for sale in the million and multi million dollar price points is pending. And as you know, we just do specs; they're not custom. So I think that's a good sign for the market. One of those homes is a two million dollar spec home, and we're probably two months or so away from completion, and it's already pending. So I might have mentioned this before, but that's a good sign. It's a good sign for the market. And then the other one that just went pending, it's the same buyers. They made an offer previously on it. I didn't accept it mainly because it was going to be contingent. And as you found out this week, you know, with contingencies and other houses and moving parts that have to happen and sell, you just never know, right? And so that is no longer the case. They sold their other house. They're living in temporary apartment housing, and so they're ready to go. So we were finally able to ink a deal, seem like great people, and they're going to get a great house that's just a few blocks from where I live. So great area. So Things are going well. We're breaking ground on our townhome project in first edition here. Probably, uh, it looks like the 20th is when we're going to start digging up the street. We have to do a sewer extension for the city of Lake Oswego before we start actually building the units. But uh, I'm excited about that. And then it's been like two years now I've been working with city of Lake Oswego. I've teamed up with another builder who's building right down the street from us on Upper Drive. We have an amazing lot. It's almost a full acre. It's about three quarters of an acre, actually. It's flat. It overlooks the entire lake. It's like a panoramic view lot. It, it's insane. It's it's the coolest lot that we've ever bought that I've ever been on. Did and, you level uh, a house there? How yep. is that lot available? It, there was a house there. Yeah, okay. Uh, we, we scraped the house, and we've been working with the city. So the problem is, is that there isn't an existing storm system that we can tap into on Upper Drive that's not already at capacity. So they won't let us tap into that. There is a hillside off the back of the lot, so we can't infiltrate on site. So what we had to do is basically work with the city to find a way to rebuild their storm system for them so that they could handle our capacity. And I've been able to now team up with another builder that is doing a couple lots right down the street. And so we came up with a plan. I met with the city last week. We're basically going to build a storm drain off the backside of Upper Drive, which is you know where the railroad track runs between Lakeview and Upper Drive. Mm-hmm. There's no storm line back there, and so we're actually going to put one in, and it'll cover the entire area that kind of affected where if anybody does any remodeling or redevelopment in the future, they're also going to have to take all their stormwater off-site. So it solves the problem for us, and it also solves the future problem for the city of Lake Oswego and other people that own property within the area. So I'm excited to finally get this going. That property is going to be absolutely amazing. It's it's my favorite lot we've ever bought, ever been to, anything, and we've got a really cool plan that hopefully... Maybe towards the end of the year, we'll start breaking ground on that and get going. Did you say you're teamed up with another builder on that? Yeah, so there's a builder that owns a big piece of property three lots over on Upper Drive. And so he is going to be hopefully splitting the cost of putting in the new storm system. So it makes it it much more advantageous for me to spread this cost over three homes as opposed to just one. Oh, got Uh, it. Yeah, Yeah, that's the value point there, I guess, as far as making this a reality. So. I'm excited that we're moving towards actually building this house because it's going to be absolutely amazing once we're done with it. So Yeah. 
How many townhomes are you building? We're just building two. So uh, what's kind of cool about this project is generally when people do townhomes on a lot in first edition, they do them kind of long-wise. So they look like duplexes, right? You kind of buy one side of a duplex and the other. We split the lot the other way, and the attached wall is on the short side. So you have less common wall, which makes you not want to kill your neighbors that much more. <laughs> but on top of that, we can make each unit look like its own house, which I think the market will receive that nicely. And we'll be able to kind of hit that underpriced point, too, that's cheaper than single families, but it looks like a single family. So I think it'll be a good addition to the first edition neighborhood, and I think the market will really like it a lot. What's your target price point on that? We're probably going to be in the 749 to 799 range. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and how close are you to all the good stuff there in first edition? I mean, are you are you we're on uh, short we're walk? Be- yeah, we're in between second and third and D. So we're walkable to everything. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, when you walk those areas, there's a lot of homes that are just tiny and kind of almost shack-like that are just begging to be <laughs> scraped, yeah, you they, will. They're not as many as you'd think now. I mean, we were kind of the first builder to go back in there in large numbers and do redevelopment a few years ago, and now everybody and their mothers jumped in, and a lot of those little shack-like houses have been kind of weeded out. But, you know, we built one, two, three, four, five houses in there in the last couple of years, and, you know, I know Renaissance Randy's in there now and, a, you know, a few other builders. So they've, they've cleaned out pretty quick. There's not many of them left, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So, but that's that's what's going on with me. Pretty busy week, a lot of good stuff. Not riding the real estate roller coaster quite as much as you, but yeah, you know, we all, we always do to some extent. That's for sure. Yeah, cool. So beyond that, why don't you bring on our guest who uh, or introduce him here? who has been patiently waiting, listening to us jibber jabber here about what's going on with us. Give him a nice introduction, and then we can roll into chatting with him. Yeah, well, I'm excited to introduce to everybody Craig Black. To give you a little background on Craig, as I mentioned before, I've been trying to get him on the show for a little while and just combination of schedules not aligning and, and various other stuff going on. Finally, the day is upon us. I'm really, really excited. He is such a unique individual in that he is a licensed appraiser and actually owns his own appraisal company. And truth be told, I met Craig, I want to say about six, seven years ago through some mutual friends. And I was a lender at the time. And he was only an appraiser. He is now a licensed realtor as well. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in, in a second. But I met him about six, seven years ago through some mutual friends. We're having a beer. And, and it was right when, you know, the mortgage industry was just changing so dramatically. And they were putting up those firewalls where we aren't allowed to talk to appraisers anymore. And I'm almost thinking to myself, should I be talking to you? Is that allowed? So somewhere along the way, I want to say a few years ago, and he can give us the exact dates. Craig got into real estate. And it's funny to say he got into real estate because I think, if I'm not mistaken, and Craig will speak to this, I think as an appraiser, you you have to have your real estate license. So he kind of went into the other side of things, though, and he started selling real estate. So here and now, flash forward to today, I know he does much, much, much less with appraising and is actually has taken off like a rock star with real estate. So he has such a great vantage point to be able to tell us what appraising was like then, what it's like now. And also, from the other side of things, he can tell us how it's affected him as a realtor. I mean, because he's doing transactions and there's appraisals on him, and he's riding that same roller coaster that so many of the rest of us are, and he gets to have that perspective as well. So, Craig, I spoke too much. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Thanks for having me, guys. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get right into it. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background as both a real estate professional and as an appraiser. You bet. Well, I started as a commercial appraiser right out of college. I finished my 
senior internship down in Florida and decided that I was not going to move back to the sticks of Illinois and moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, where I had a high school cross-country and track teammate that graduated from North Carolina State. And he said, hey, you may still have some of the best running ahead of you, so why don't you move here, continue to train with some of our alumni, and get yourself a job. And so I did. And as I got there, kind of in the fall of 1994, I just picked up a job at REI and was working for the local Parks and Rec Department and knew that was not for me. So I answered an ad in the paper in the Raleigh News and Observer for a research assistant for a commercial appraisal firm. So I went in and met with him. He was a British fellow that had just moved to Raleigh and had just created his own little small commercial real estate appraisal firm. And he just liked my energy. And he said, I'll teach you the ropes. I need somebody like you. And so I was hired. And right thereafter, I was working on commercial appraisal reports of $50 million office buildings. And I thought, oh boy, what have I got myself into here? So that's where it started. And then I spent three years there and decided it was time for a change of scenery. I had family that lived out here in Oregon, down the coast. And my mom and dad and sister and I visited out here a lot. And I always liked Portland. I liked the city. Obviously, I was into the Steve Prefontaine running cult. So it was a nice fit for me. And I went to work for a big commercial real estate appraisal firm here called Palmer Growth in Pietka. And all the principals are still around in some form or fashion. But it was a larger, it was the largest commercial appraisal firm on the West Coast at that time. There were offices up and down the West Coast. And spent time there, spent time at another smaller commercial appraisal firm. And then in 2003, there was such a demand for residential appraisal work. And I had friends like you, Steve, that were lenders at the time. And they said, Craig, if you can appraise apartment buildings and malls and shopping centers and office buildings and industrial buildings, you can certainly appraise a house. And we've got all sorts of work for you. So in 2003, I set out on my own and decided I needed to teach myself how to appraise a house and continued to work on small apartment buildings as well as a nice little blend of residential and commercial work. And from there, built it into having another business partner and a mix of other assistants and residential and commercial appraisers. And we had a great time. We had a good run. But right about the time that the firewalls were put in place, things really changed for us. And I spent most of my time working on residential assignments and developing relationships with loan officers and lenders. And those were good times. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it really worked out well. I mean, we have, as appraisers, we have a lot of liability and a lot of rules and regs that we needed to follow at that time. But, you know, when the mortgage crash occurred, everybody was pointing the finger at everybody else, including the appraisers. And that's when the firewalls were created. And it really impacted our business at the time. For instance, if an appraisal came in with my name on it, I had to be responsible for it. I couldn't hand it off to an employee if they weren't on the approved appraisal panel. I couldn't allow the assistant to go do the inspection or co-sign the appraisal. So it really changed how you could build your business. A couple of quick follow-up questions for you, Craig. Is the money a lot better in commercial than residential appraising? 
you would think with those price points that there's a lot more money on the line, but maybe it's not that obvious that way. The fees are larger just because they're more complicated assignments and they're larger reports, you know, but it's more of a grind. It can be more of a grind because you're spending sometimes two, three weeks writing a wow. commercial appraisal report. And there's, there's different forms. There's appraisals for small apartment buildings that can be completed on forms. I, have, I still have friends and other appraisers I've worked with in the past that continue to pump those out, and they're really efficient. But a lot of commercial appraisers really specialize in certain property types. And so, yeah, the earnings can be quite a bit more depending on the level of the appraisals that are needed by the lenders. So working with large insurance companies and pension fund groups that still require you know, massive reports with discounted cash flows and Argus runs and these are multi-tenant properties. I mean, those, those fees can be ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. Wow. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of like the few bigger projects versus, you know, the, the smaller, cheaper ones. So kind of, if you do residential, an analogy would be the, the hamster just has to run faster on the wheel, right? I mean, that's essentially what it is. I can't imagine, you know, people do a ton of the bigger ones, but obviously you don't have to do a ton to make great money. But on the more residential stuff, you know, you got to crank out quite a bit more volume in order to hit those same numbers, essentially. Definitely. Yeah. And it sounded to me like at the end of the year, you make about the same on both. You make less on the residential ones, but you can do a lot more of them. You make more on the commercial ones, but you do less of them. Possibly, if I also heard you right, you can leverage yourself a little bit better on the residential ones. Or you could back then, if you were the rainmaker and your lenders were sending you a bunch of appraisals, you could say, hey, assistant, you'd go do this one. I'll sign off on it. Hey, assistant, you go do this one. I'll sign off on it. And so that might have been where things were really advantageous to being residential. Yeah, I typically with the assistants would accompany them because most of the assistants that we've had in the past are working their way to become licensed. So anytime that we had assistants working with us, we would accompany them on the appraisal inspection. We would look at the comps, but we would give them they would assist us with writing the report and being involved, you know, having their name mentioned in the report. They provided substantial assistance to the writing and research and the development of the appraisal. It was still my name on it. And so I still had to be responsible for it. It became different when I had a business partner. And if we had a residential assignment that was in West Lynn, but it came in with my name on it, and I was the only one on the approved appraisal panel. And this is when the AMCs stepped in, I had to do it. Even if it was a neighboring property to his in West Lynn and he knew West Lynn better than me, I couldn't just simply hand it over to him. So then our business had to change and now it's evolved into basically one-man shops because the residential appraisers have gotten so busy they don't want to take any time to mentor at this stage. And the barrier of entry has gotten stiffer, requirements are harder, Experience takes a while. And most appraisers like me would rather just be lean and mean and just eat what we kill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've got a, another buddy that's the same way. And, um, you know, he does pretty well just being a one man band without all of the um, one appraiser shop as opposed to all the headache and hassle and overhead of carrying other people. And, you know, as we all know, the more employees you have, the more people problems you have. And so it kind of detracts from, you know, going out and and just revenue generating tasks a lot of times, especially when you can't leverage yourself as much as you used to be able to. I've gotten to the stage now where it's a, it's a work life balance. 
I could be as busy as I wanted to be on the appraisal side of things. I mean, I literally guys get 40 to 50 requests a day. Wow. Whether they're sent directly to me and lenders and AMCs want me to accept it or they're via broadcast orders. And if I'm quick on the draw, I can snag it. But it's, it's a great time to be an appraiser. It really is. If you're already in and you, know, you can write, like I said earlier, you can, you can pretty much name your fee and turn time and terms. It You'll sounds be- like a lot of appraisers I've talked to, they fought the transition, right? And this kind of leads into Steve's next question that he had for you here, which is kind of comparing the industry from 10 years ago to now. A lot of guys fought the change. They didn't like the AMC thing. They didn't like becoming an approved appraiser on whatever board for the AMC or whatever it is that has to approve you. They just they, they fought it a little bit. And then there were guys like you that it sounds like you embraced it. You got signed up and approved with a lot of these, you know, AMC companies. And, you know, now you basically can stay as busy as you want to, right? I mean, is that kind of the progression and the change in the last 10 years? Absolutely. And, you know, rush fees have become the new norm. And I snicker every time I see a request come through where it says rush fee, rush fee, rush fee. Well, they're all rush fees now because most appraisers that I know that are any good, if they're not two or three weeks out, there's, there's a problem. What's an average rush fee, Craig? Oh, boy, that's a great question. I'm really not leaving my desk for less than $550 for an appraisal, and that's going to be cookie cutter. I would say most of those that I see come across now are going to have $150 to $250 premium attached for a rush, and they would typically like it back in 7 or 10 days. And in years past, 7 or 10 days, you wouldn't get the assignment. You need to be able to have it back in 3 to 5 days. Mm-hmm. And now... I just actually accepted an appraisal this morning for a condo in the South Waterfront, and I have three and a half weeks to complete it. And it's a purchase. And it's amazing to me that buyer and seller and agents are going to have to deal with a three, three and a half week turn time. Sounds like maybe their lender didn't do the right thing and asked for a rush <laughs> for another 150 bucks. Well, it's interesting. I, I had a, on a real estate transaction recently, one of the last ones I closed, the lender went ahead and ordered the appraisal once we were in, in contract. And this particular loan officer said, if the transaction fails, I will cover the appraisal. Smart. Because she didn't want to have to worry about the appraisal holding things up and, and the closing not occurring in time. Well, and you could probably cancel it if you had to. I mean, if they're truly three weeks out without a rush, chances are it's going to be timed pretty nicely where about the time you're signing off the inspection contingency, you're about a week away from getting an appraisal. Maybe the visit happened in there, but still, I think that's a great way to do business. So I wanted to add when you asked me about rush fees is there's actually another local lender that I do a fair amount of work for, and they're blasting about every third or fourth day all the appraisers on their panel, and they're offering $1,200, to turn an appraisal in four or five days. And it's a first come, first serve basis. And if you're the quickest on the draw, you're going to get it. Hmm. And that's become their method of operation right now is to get appraisals back in a timely manner, but they're putting a big ticket price on. Mm-hmm. And they're probably getting a lot more business as they're running around telling all their realtors that they can close deals in 
three weeks as opposed to everybody else's five weeks or so. Hey, Craig, so this is kind of news to me. It sounds to me like you're doing a little bit more appraising than than you were even six months or a year ago. Would you say that's accurate? And it's probably because of these rush fees, too. Yeah, Yeah, the rush fees make it look pretty appealing, right? I'm doing more than I want to be. And it's difficult to turn work down when it's there. And so it's a nice fallback where if I get slow on transactions on the realtor side, I'm just basically referral based. I haven't really delved too deep into marketing myself too much as the realtor. But the goal was to do less appraisals and compete for more real estate business. Well, now that the fees are the way that they are, it's difficult to turn down the work. And I'm trying to specialize in just certain areas of town. Like I really enjoy doing the appraisals of Pearl condos and South waterfront in Southwest Portland, where I recently lived. So I'm really just sort of snagging the cookie cutter assignments in the areas that I'm most competent. But yeah, Steve, answer your question. I am doing more than I'd like to right now, but it seems that there's a lot of emergencies over the last month or two. And I guess I kind of feel like I have to step in and help folks out. You know, now that I've become more active realtor, folks know that I'm also an appraiser. And if they've got an emergency situation, they can call me and I can usually get it taken care of for them, assuming I'm on the preferred appraisal panel that they're using. And that the rush fee is. Well, and also, it's not like they're entirely unrelated. It's not like you're a a realtor on the side and then bus tables or something. I mean, these are two very closely connected industries where as you're doing one, you're getting better at the other and vice versa. So that works to your advantage. Hey, that's a good segue, Craig. Let's talk about it. I mean, why is the state of appraisal turn times so bad right now? I mean, I think we touched on it. The, The barrier of entry is high. Are there more appraisers coming in to alleviate some of this bottleneck? What What's going on there? Well, the requirements have changed a fair amount over the last three or four years. The biggest one that I see is that to become a certified appraiser, not just licensed, but to be certified, which is what all the banks and lenders and AMCs require, you now have to have a four-year college degree. Wow. And that's making it difficult for young guys and girls to get into the field because you're eventually going to want to get certified. And if you find an appraiser that wants to mentor you, then you need to have a four-year degree. Did it and used to be a two-year like community college type thing or did they change it? Because I thought it was that previously. Like they it, may, it, like it may have been, Tucker. I've, I mean, this, this is almost my 20th year and the rules have changed so much that it's really difficult for me to stay on top of them. And over the last four or five years when I've kind of become less of an appraiser and more of a realtor. Yeah, it's not all that important. I just think I I was just trying to identify there is has been a change, obviously, that makes that barrier of entry even higher, as you mentioned. There is. is. In fact, I was just reading an article this morning that was posted on Masters, and it was an article written about the state of the appraisal industry and the requirements – that it now takes to become certified and having to have somebody mentor you for almost two and a half years before you can sit to take your, you know, your appraisal exam. And this article interviewed the senior vice president of access appraisal management company. And they're one of the larger ones in the country. 
And he said that he has an appraiser on his staff that he was able to become trained and qualified as a pilot and flew some of the biggest commercial airplanes in far less time than it took him to become eligible to be a certified appraiser. Wow. <laughs> that, was, that was stunning to me. Yeah, um, I mean – I get it. That really does explain that because, I mean, here you have, you got to get four years of college. You then have to be mentored for two and a half years. And then you're just, you're just hitting the ground then. You, you haven't even started really making the money. And granted, right now, here now today, those fees are really attractive in the, you know, when you start talking about $1,500 appraisals, I think even us realtors are like, hmm, that's, that's pretty good money for running out to a house and, you know, pulling some right. comps. But, that can go away to tomorrow or next month or next year, and suddenly they're back to the five hundred dollars a pop. And I don't think, you know, I don't think that's quite as alluring. So I could see where that barrier of entry is really hurting the industry and hurting some of the turn times. Yeah, they went on to say that in two thousand seven there were one hundred and twenty one thousand appraisers, and I'm I'm guessing that means certified appraisers. And right now there's somewhere in the vicinity of eighty seven thousand. And that number is a bit skewed because there's a lot of appraisers that are in review positions. There's appraisers that are part of, they're no longer doing work or they're part of a, you know, a lending team or an appraisal management team. And so they're not actively appraising. So that number is much less than the 87,000. Hmm. It's just a supply and demand issue. I mean, they're just, it, it, it absolutely is. And then, so like the average appraiser today is approaching 58 years old and I remember when I took my first appraisal class back in Raleigh, North Carolina, I was 22 years old and I was the youngest person in that class by at least 30 years. Wow. Everybody around me was 50 plus. Hmm. As I sat there, I thought, boy, in 20 or 30 years, this, this attrition of retiring appraisers is going to create a shortage. And that has a lot to do with it as well. It's hmm. always been, for lack of a better word, kind of an old boy network. You know, I think it's very similar to a lot of trades that, you know, there's a shortage in quality tradesmen these days as well, which is why a lot of our construction costs have been going up over the last year or so as the markets continued to, to heat up and transactions have been plentiful. I think it's very similar. I think you've got a situation where you've got just a lack of appraisers, first of all, but a lack of quality appraisers that can do a lot of the work that needs to be done. And of course, that puts upward pressure on prices, right? So it's, I think, you know, what we're seeing here is not unsimilar to what we're seeing in a lot of the other trades for framing, electrical, plumbing, you know, things of that nature as well. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say about the fees is that, you know, the residential appraisal fee had been $400 for 30 to 40 years. I mean, now is the time for those fees to continue to go up because there's a shortage. I can't tell you the number of times that I've heard residential appraisers moan and groan about how residential fees could never go up. Well, now's the time for those that are in to continue to crank the fees up. And I've you know seen a lot of hubbub with this article and also on Masters, too, about the price of appraisals. Well, they've been the same price for 30 or 40 years. It was bound to change, and it's primarily due to the shortage of appraisers and the barrier to entry. You know what's funny is for the longest time when I was a lender, appraisal was $400. I mean, it was just like clockwork, $400, $400, $400. The second they put in the AMC process, it immediately bounced up. That's it's unfortunate just, because that there's a fee that has to be paid to the appraisal management company for managing the assignment, and the consumer ends up getting hurt by that. Mm -hmm. 
that was what was ironic because it was done as a protection and it immediately changed something that had been so constant for so long. One other quick question about that. So on the appraisal certification, did they grandfather in those who were already in? I'm assuming it's only yeah. they, a date came where they said any new certifications have to have that four year degree. Correct. Yeah. Sort of the you could become a licensed appraiser, but that particular license, I'm not sure, has any merit these days because every lender wants you to be certified and every, every lender typically wants you to be certified and FHA approved. Yeah, that's and, interesting because I, I have a, a friend who's been in the appraisal business for a long time. He didn't go to college, whether it be community college or otherwise. And so at this point, he's probably pigeonholed himself to, you know, never being certified. Right, unless you you, know, so you want to spend the money and go back to school and get your four-year degree. Right. Uh, it's going to be tough. That sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> let's, let's move on to the real estate side of things, the realtor side of things. Flash forward to today. How long have you been a realtor, Craig? So it's about four years now. In fact, my license is coming up for renewal. So I believe it's four, a little over four years. And as an appraiser, remind me again, isn't an appraiser a licensed realtor in some capacity? No. An appraiser has to be a member of a realtor board to have access to RMLS. So not all appraisers are licensed realtors. Okay. So okay. Most, most appraisers that I know are a member of a realtor board, and that's what gives you access to multiple listings. Got it. Okay. So when you were becoming a realtor, you had to do everything like the rest of us. You had to go through the pro schools or online courses, pass the, the exams. Okay. So right. you, you became a realtor. I know I've talked to you. I've seen you around. You're doing really well at that. Let's talk about the appraisal process and how you've seen it from that side of things and how it's impacted your role. I mean, let's start with how do you proactively avoid a low appraisal valuation when it's one of your transactions as a realtor, whether you're on the list side or the buy side? Well, on the listing side, I learned from those that I'd met while wearing my appraiser hat. And I really enjoy when I show up and meet a listing agent who has comps for me, has maybe even copies of all the offers that were received, because now these days there's so many properties that are receiving multiple offers. And meet me there and talk to me about the house. I think it's unfair, you know, for an appraiser to be able to show up for 30 minutes and think that they know that property and that market more than the listing agent who has been intimately involved with it for two, three, four weeks. So I really try to have comps ready. There are some appraisers that won't take them. They don't want to be influenced. I can respect that. Most of them do. So I think it's, it's nice to be armed with comparables. It's nice to even have a sketch because it cuts the appraiser's time down at being in the property. Talk to them about how they establish the list price. You know, talk to them about the offers that were received. So, yeah, some of the best listing agents that I've done appraisals for, that's, they're prepared. Mm -hmm. And that's what I try to do. I really try to make sure that before the appraiser shows up, I have you know, the data that I felt was the best data to establish that list price. It's definitely a delicate dance. You brought up a good point. A lot of appraisers will shut down or get turned off if you're too quick at the draw with those comps. My experience, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'd love to get your take on it. My experience is, is when you show up to the property, it's usually best to talk about the weather, talk about the <laughs> NBA Finals game the Small night talk, before. Right, yeah. First and foremost, be likable, be nice, be friendly. 
win them over in that regards, and then somewhere in the process segue over to, yeah, so, you know, what are you looking, how does it look on this as far as value goes? You know, we did have a bunch of offers. I do have some comps if you're interested in seeing them. Because I'll tell you, if you go to that appointment and you just come right out of the gate with comps and like, hey, I want to show you why this is worth what it is, and it can really be off-putting to them and, and shut them down. What do you think on that, Craig? I agree. I've been in it for so long that I just kind of expect that now (laughs) where the comps are there. But yeah, I I agree. I think it's best to sort of massage that experience. My opinion is appraisers kind of tend to think that it's a grind. I mean, I I agree. It's a grind at times, particularly right now. There's, There's more work to be had. And so a lot of them are going from appointment to appointment stressed about turn times, lenders are bugging them over email and phone calls about if the inspection's been set, if the report's on time. So it gets a bit stressful for them. So I agree. Any way that you can make the experience a little better for them and engage with them, because they, we all tend to, I, I'm still one, but I tend to sometimes think that we're just sort of a rubber stamp to a transaction. And I know that there's a lot of appraisers that I've met along the way that just sort of feel as if you know, they're just the the last piece of the puzzle. And if you can make it a little brighter experience for them while they're there, I think they're very appreciative. I know I am. Mm-hmm. So have you had low appraisals on some of your transactions, Craig, as a realtor, of course? My first two transactions, <laughs> I got low appraisals. And How did you handle it? What was your approach? Well, the first one was due to the fact that the appraiser didn't have the addendum indicating that the purchase price had been increased to cover some closing costs. Mm. And I knew that the comps out there supported the higher price, so I didn't have any trouble inflating the purchase price to offset the closing costs. But because this appraiser wasn't provided it on the front end, they were not willing to revise the appraisal. That's a lender failure, by the way. Absolutely. Yeah, that is. Shame on them. The other one, you know, of course, I felt as if it was justified. So I went through the appeal process with the lender at the time and provided some additional comparable data and some dialogue. And the appraiser revisited the appraisal and and made the change and we got it done. But uh, yeah, my very first two transactions, I thought, oh gosh, what have I gotten myself into here? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you mention that you're an appraiser at all in that process? I try not to. I really don't, unless it will benefit me down the road. But I try to make sure that I'm wearing my realtor hat at all times. And that's, I always get questions like, how can you be an appraiser and a realtor at the same time? And I said, you just have to be very careful which hat you're wearing. And you can't show up with your appraiser hat on and try to solicit realtor business and vice versa. So I'm cautious with that. Yeah, that's probably a good way to go because you don't want to, um, you know, take the road of, hey, I think I might know more than you kind of thing that could alienate people. So it's better to just, you know, embrace people, feel them out and give them what they need, but not make it adversarial at all. And I think that's a smart move on your part. Yeah, I have mentioned I have mentioned to a couple of appraisers along the way. If we've developed a good rapport over the phone or email or however we've established the inspection date, or if it's an appraiser that I've met before along the way, and I'll mention it, but I I try not to have that 
be influential with what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, so obviously I've had some low appraisals along the way. It's interesting. If you had asked me two years ago if when you get a low appraisal, if it's even worth fighting, I would have probably said no. I'd had so many experiences where I felt like we put together just an airtight, bulletproof, here's the comps that we used and show them the adjustments that are made and it made sense to us. What I felt at that time was that to go back to an appraiser and say, you're effectively saying you're wrong and and appraisers just didn't and don't in general like to acknowledge that. I mean, you're for them to go, whoops, you're right, I'm I'm wrong, let me go ahead and change that for you. It just felt like it was such a grind and, and such a low percentage rate of return. Because I'll tell you, I'd have transactions, and we would work on this for like hours and hours trying to come up with a rebuttal, and then it would just get shot down. Nope, didn't make sense, we're still at that value. And so there came a point where I kind of stopped doing it as much. I will tell you, I've had some fairly recent success in this regards. I think it's, it has, I think it has a lot to do with a couple things. I think it has a lot to do with the lender and their relationship with the AMC. I think it also has to do with this crazy market we're in. I had one, this is a real time story, guys. I mean, I, I got this appraisal back yesterday. It was a house over in Selwood and it was listed at 395, went into multiple offers. We got our offer accepted. I'm representing the buyer, by the way. Our offer is accepted at 430. Appraisal comes back at 395. Well, we start digging around and there's all these pending transactions. The appraisal had some comps and we pulled some comps and yeah, there was, there wasn't some great closed transactions that validated our price, but there was all these pending ones and we were calling these agents around there. Some of my team was working on this along with a lender. They're calling these people and they're like, yeah, we're pending and we're going to close much closer to where we needed to be. So we, uh, formulated a rebuttal, sent that to the appraiser through the lender and through the AMC, came back, said, nope, I'm still at 395. They were able to find enough discrepancies in it. They said, let's just do a completely independent neutral appraisal. And by the way, this is a conventional transaction. You could never do that with FHA. That appraisal is married to that property for, what is it? Six months, I believe. I think it's six months, Steve. Yeah. It's a while. Yeah. So on a conventional transaction, they ordered another appraisal And sure enough, a bunch of those pending transactions had closed. It actually came higher than the 430. And this just happened this last, this week. And so I think in this crazy market with everything going up and everything being a a moving target as far as values, I think there are opportunities to do those challenges and sometimes come out ahead. But but I still also have seen a lot of them get turned down. So it's an interesting conversation for sure. And I know it's one, it's a lively one. It's always on masters. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of debate and there's a lot of frustration in this regards. You're right. And that's a great example. And I just had a very similar scenario where it was a local lender. It was a property in Westmoreland that had a ridiculously amount of offers it went up $80,000 above the list price. And I got about as close as I could get, but was low. And I submit the appraisal and I added some additional narrative discussing the Portland market, that the market's outpacing the comps, that there's pending sales there, but they're not closed. And I tried to call some other agents to, you know, have them confirm the pending price. But, you know, 
lots of agents don't like to confirm pending sale prices because if something happens, then mm-hmm. you know you kind of set a standard there. But sure enough, the lender came back to me about seven or eight days later and said, "Hey, the comp that you used as pending sale number five also received multiple offers. It closed at this price. Would you reconsider?" making some adjustments to your appraisal based on this information. And of course, then it has to become a new appraisal. I have to reinspect the property, reinspect the comps. And I did that because I wanted to do the right thing. But that absolutely happened on my end too. Hmm. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Let's keep moving along, Craig. What's the relationship now like between lenders and appraisers? And feel free to say it's non-existent. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't say it's non-existent. I will have you know, I'll have somebody reach out to me via email and say, hey, you know, we'd love to be able to add you to our panel or, hey, you know, I've got this appraisal, you know, can we add you to the panel? So there's some dialogue there with trying to shorten turn times and get additional appraisers added to their panel. I probably get 10 to 12 emails a week from new AMCs wanting, wanting to add me. And I just, I don't have the capacity or the interest at this stage. But I think there's a little more dialogue now than there has been over the last three or four years. And it's not pertaining to, you know, whether you can hit this value. They're just trying to get more people added to their panel. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand that. So I think there's some communication, but there's no communication at all between lender and appraiser. It still ran through the AMCs and the firewalls that have been created. Correct me if I'm wrong, but at the end of the appraisal, isn't there a form you signed that says you had no contact with the loan officer? I haven't seen that form from those that I work with. There is, in an appraisal, I typically state that I haven't had anything to do with the property in the last three years. Mm. I haven't appraised it or I haven't been involved in any sort of transaction pertaining to it. But I haven't seen any forms recently that state that. Okay. That might have been might be specific to a certain AMC or something yeah, like that. Maybe. Yeah, right. yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah, and and you know, back to that subject. I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but man, that was just such a massive change when when they put that firewall in place. I felt so bad for these appraisers who, over the years, just had this stream of income and stream of business coming at them that suddenly just got shut down. It would be the equivalent. I was a lender at the time when that came into place, and it'd be the equivalent of, you know, you run around for. 10, 20 years of your career building all these relationships with realtors and then somebody coming in and just putting a, a brick wall there and saying, nope, you can't have business from them anymore. Go figure out another way to get business. So it really did change the uh, the relationship between lenders and appraisers. I mean, in theory, I mean, it has done a good job of what they intended it to do. It's added a uh, an objective viewpoint that is not directly contingent on business even though I will say it's probably indirectly contingent. And what I mean by that is if an appraiser doesn't hit value on one property, I doubt they're concerned in this day and age that that AMC or that lender or that loan officer, certainly that loan officer, is going to no longer send them business, which was the case 10 years ago. I mean, those were conversations I think every loan officer probably had with every appraiser at one time or another, like, hey, I send you a lot of business. What do we got to do to make this work? That was the reality of the industry, and it caused a lot of problems for the industry. In this day and age, though, I will say the good lenders and the good AMCs are keeping the appraisers who aren't workable. I mean, you said it yourself, Craig. I mean, on that transaction, you could have been a jerk. It would have been 
I don't even know. Did you get paid any more for that, or is it exactly the same? No, in this particular case, because it was a you know it's a local lender, and I like the AMC that they use. I felt it was the right thing to do. I didn't charge anything else for it. I mean, I had another appraisal in the area, so I zoomed past the property to make sure it was still, you know, as I saw it a week ago, and made sure that you know the comps were still the comps, and went past the pending sale and looked at that. So I just I went for it. I knocked it out. I didn't charge any additional fee for it. I just, it's not fair to the buyer. Wasn't fair gotcha. to the, yeah. to the So to my point, the good lenders, the good AMCs, they are keeping a pool of good appraisers like you who have a mindset of, hey, I, I want to be a team player whenever possible. I want to get the deal done. And if they have somebody that repeatedly is missing values and doesn't seem to to give a rip about it, then they're, they're re- releasing them from that pool. So... Good stuff, though. I know we got to wrap up. Tucker's giving me the signals. <laughs> it's about that time, but uh, I think we've covered a lot of great ground on this. I think you know you had a lot of really good insight, Craig. So we we appreciate you finally coming on the show, and I think that everybody listening is really going to get a lot out of this interview. So we appreciate it a lot. I'm glad you guys had me. Thank you very much. All right, guys. Well, this is episode forty. We are wrapping it up. The big four zero. We'll be back again next week. We'll see you guys then. Thanks again for listening to our show, and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.